Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast, recorded Monday, July 17th, 2006. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today, we will discuss an article published in the August issue of Critical Care Medicine, entitled, Methicillin-Resistant Staphylococcus aureus Sterile Site Infection, the Importance of Appropriate Initial Antimicrobial Treatment. Joining us today is Dr. Marin Koliff, Professor of Medicine in the Department of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, and he is also the Director of Medical Critical Care at Barnes-Jewish Hospital. The reference is Critical Care Medicine 2006, Volume 34, Number 8. Thank you so much, Dr. Kola, for being with us today. Well, thank you for uh, having me here. I thought we'd begin um, by discussing a little bit of background. Uh, you know, from the literature, you have a longstanding interest in this concept of, quote-unquote, you know, being on the right antibiotic up front. These issues of, it seems to be that the paradigm for both pneumonia and sepsis has changed, even from when I was a resident, of constantly broadening your antibiotic coverage to, as I was discussing even this morning with the residents on rounds, hitting hard, hitting broad, hitting early, and then this concept of antibiotic de-escalation. And so I thought we'd begin by having you talk a little bit about that since the paradigm seems to be similar to this article. Oh, absolutely. Um, Like you, uh, I'm a working intensivist practicing in the intensive care unit. Uh, I made rounds this morning with our house staff. The playing field has changed over the last 10 to 15 years. I mean, more commonly now, when we're dealing with a patient in the ICU who has an infection, primarily a hospital-acquired, but even more community-type infections, we're dealing with increasingly antibiotic-resistant pathogens. And for that reason, as clinicians, uh, you know, we have to try to get the antibiotic therapy right at the beginning. Now, that's sort of an intuitive statement, but it's only been in the last uh, probably eight years or so that a large body of evidence has emerged demonstrating that that impacts outcome. And in fact, we and others have shown that, uh, you know, even delays, relatively short delays of hours, uh, in terms of getting the right antibiotic on board can result in worse clinical outcomes. And this has been demonstrated for different types of organisms. Uh, we've done projects looking at Pseudomonas bacteremia, invasive uh, bloodstream infections with Canada species, as well as the paper that you alluded to focusing on MRSA sterile site infections, all of which are very consistent with one another. So it's clear that that initial antimicrobial therapy is a key element in determining the patient's outcome. 
Now, having said that, uh, you know, we recognize that we live in an increasingly complex environment. As clinicians, we're dealing with patients that come into us from nursing homes. They've been recently hospitalized. There's a higher level of immunocompromised states among these patients. And so the likelihood that any of them is going to be colonized and subsequently infected with an antibiotic-resistant organism is quite high. So the de-escalation approach is simply a way for clinicians to try and categorize an individual's risk for infection with antibiotic-resistant pathogens. If they fall into one of these higher-risk categories, well, then one would start broadly covering for resistant organisms such as MRSA, Pseudomonas, and other gram-negatives, possibly other types of organisms such as fungal infection, depending on the category of the patient. And then after 24 to 48 hours, when the culture results are back, the patient has gone through the initial evaluation and treatment, one can then modify the therapy, so-called de-escalation, which allows for us to balance the need to provide appropriate early therapy and at the same time try to minimize the emergence of antibiotic resistance. As another area of background, before we delve into the, the current paper, I know that you and one of your colleagues, I guess Dr. Wondering, uh, did some important work that was published uh, both in intensive care medicine and on chest, looking at uh, nosocomial pneumonia and ventilator-associated pneumonia, looking at some new agents uh, for treatment of that. And I thought that this was somewhat related to this, again, looking at gram-positive organisms, if you could talk about that for a few minutes. Sure. When we talk about pneumonia, and I think that, you know, as clinicians, we have to understand that, you know, organisms differ from one another, infections differ from one another, and I don't think it makes sense that we can treat every infection and every organism the same way. Obviously, in terms of susceptibility profiles, certain pathogens will be susceptible to one drug versus another, but in addition to that, infection in certain sites may be more amenable to treatment with specific agents. Now, the lung is somewhat of a unique organ so that when we're dealing with pneumonia, we have to deal with the issue of getting antibiotics delivered to the lung in an adequate concentration to have the clinical effect that we would like. And we know that certain antibiotics simply don't penetrate well into the lung. Aminoglycosides are sort of a classic example of that. There have been studies done looking at IV aminoglycoside therapy demonstrating that you know, maybe somewhere between a third to 40% of the drug actually makes its way into the intraalveolar compartment. And that's important because that's a concentration-dependent killer. We know that for agents targeting gram-positive infection, vancomycin, daptomycin, there are similar issues there related to the protein binding effects for those drugs as well as their inability to penetrate well into the lung. And for those reasons, you know, we did a study, actually two studies that you alluded to, suggesting that an alternative agent to vancomycin, in this case linazolid, would have some advantage. And in fact, from a clinical standpoint, based on the studies that we did, the patients seemed to have better outcomes and higher rates of bacterial eradication. I will tell you that uh, we have continued to investigate that area, primarily from the standpoint of looking at vancomycin pharmacokinetics and their relationship in the lung. We presented some of these data uh, at the last uh, American Thoracic Society meeting, and in fact, uh, we have data that will be published in the near future suggesting that even higher trough levels and higher area under the curve concentration levels for vancomycin 
don't result in greater outcomes, but simply may be associated with a higher likelihood for renal toxicity. So it's a complex area. I think that, you know, in this area of MRSA, pneumonia specifically, you know, we have the option of other agents, linazolid being one, other drugs being evaluated include a new agent not approved yet that holds a lot of promise, which is septabiprol, and this is an MRSA drug that's also a cephalosporin, giving you a fairly broad activity against gram-negatives as well as MRSA. Tigacycline is a drug that's available that's undergoing evaluation because it does appear to concentrate in the lung. That may have some opportunity for improving our treatment of MRSA pneumonia. So I, I think there are additional agents, and I think that clinicians just need to be aware of the limitations of ankylmycin, specifically when we're discussing pneumonia. The other point that's important is that clinicians also need to recognize that a lot of patients who grow MRSA out of an endotracheal tube, a tracheostomy tube, or from their respiratory secretions don't have pneumonia. They may simply be colonized. So clinicians need to be able to differentiate the colonized patient from the infected patient. And unfortunately, that often does not occur and a lot of our antibiotic use goes towards treating colonization. Two of the other uh, points that I know you uh, emphasize quite frequently in the literature uh, regarding gram-positive organisms in the intensive care unit, and I was wondering if you could comment on these two points, are one is that uh, gram-positive organisms, uh, specifically MRSA, is, as you alluded to before, but maybe if you could expand upon it, is no longer a hospital, only a hospital-acquired agent. And the second issue is that, that gram-positive organisms are certainly equaling, if not surpassing, in terms of the frequency of being seen in the intensive care unit as a significant pathogen. Absolutely. You know, to answer your first question, I think there are two points to be made there. The first is that we now know that there is a community strain of MRSA that is distinct from what we have been dealing with in the hospital environment. This is well described. There are a number of well-done studies uh, from the CDC as well as from other centers suggesting that this organism is one that uh, is different genetically. It has the ability to express exotoxins, including panton-valentine-lycosidin, and it causes a much more virulent infection. Now, primarily, these are skin and skin structure infections, although we see invasive infections as well. And here at our hospital, at Barnes-Jewish Hospital, we have seen patients with invasive pneumonia that we also have described, uh, a very fulminant form of endocarditis, as well as necrotizing skin and skin structure infections. So these are truly community strains of MRSA. And when the patients come in with these infections, they do not have typical risk factors for hospital or healthcare-acquired infection. So that's one issue. The second issue is that as clinicians, we need to be aware that when we call someone or label someone as having a community-acquired infection, uh, simply because they're entering the hospital with their infection, that may not be accurate. And for example, uh, in the more recent uh, American Thoracic Society, Infectious Disease Society of America guidelines on nosocomial pneumonia, we have this category of healthcare-acquired pneumonia or healthcare-acquired infection, meaning that any patient that enters the hospital with an infection, if they are admitted from a nursing home, 
they were hospitalized recently, they're on chronic dialysis or being seen regularly in a hospital-type clinic, for example, oncology where they're getting infusions and such, those patients are not community patients. They really are healthcare patients. And that's why when they come in, their organisms are very different than what we see in the community. In those patients, we actually see a very high rate of MRSA and resistant gram-negatives, including pseudomonas. Now, the second question simply has to do with the burden of gram-positive bacterial infections in the hospital and the ICU. And clearly, the tide has turned where gram-positive bacteria have become the predominant organisms. It's not to say we shouldn't focus on gram-negatives. They are also our key pathogens. We're dealing with a lot of specific uh, increasing issues related to virulence and resistance. But the amount of gram-positive bacterial infection, particularly MRSA, is staggering. And I think that uh, that is posing uh, a lot of problems for treating clinicians. Uh, at this point, I thought we could focus in on this particular paper from uh, Critical Care Medicine, the MRSA sterile site infection. And as I began the podcast by saying, I know you in particular have written uh, some uh, landmark studies showing that it really matters that you you know get it right the first time. And I thought if you could sort of talk about how this study was conceived and designed and maybe a little bit of the details. Sure. I, I, I will let you know that... Um this study was uh, conceived by uh, a group, a working group that we have that encompasses uh, clinical pharmacists as well as uh, critical care physicians and members from the infectious disease uh, division. The, the issue is that, you know, we anecdotally have recognized that there are patients that are admitted to the hospital and they have a sterile site infection and it grows out MRSA and often the initial antibiotic regimen did not include MRSA coverage. So we wanted to look at that and determine whether or not that had any bearing on outcome, like we've shown for other pathogens and other infections. And uh, surprisingly to us, uh, when we looked at this population or this cohort, it was a fairly large cohort that was evaluated over a three-year period. We had 549 patients, and uh, the mortality rate was 23%. Now, it turned out that patients who received inappropriate antibiotic therapy made up the majority. There were 380 of them. So this was a very large group of patients, and we strictly defined this as whether or not they received initial antibiotic therapy that included coverage for MRSA. And only, uh, I was looking here at your table, uh, two, I guess, not everybody was in the ICU, right? No, 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 no. These were patients throughout the hospital, not just in the intensive care unit. Right. And we wanted to do that because we wanted to make the point that this is not a problem limited to the intensive care unit. Right, right. This is a hospital-wide issue. And the point of the matter is that I think as clinicians, we need to be very sensitive to this and have an appropriate suspicion for the presence of MRSA and start therapy early. And if the patient does not have evidence of MRSA, then consider de-escalation. And in my mind, that's a fairly simple idea and one that should be easily executed. In fact, in rounds today, we had a patient, uh, actually two patients, uh, that we started on fairly broad antibiotic therapy that were admitted to the ICU in the last 24 hours, both of whom had negative cultures for MRSA, both of whom had their MRSA coverage stopped. 
nice escalation, or I should say a nice example of de-escalation. And just for the listeners who may not have the paper in front of them, uh, from what uh, I can gather here, the mortality rate, if you had appropriate, uh, if you had inappropriate therapy, it was 26.1% versus 16.6%, correct? That's right. That was a statistically significant difference. And when we performed a logistic regression analysis, we found that the administration of an inappropriate initial antibiotic regimen to these patients was an independent predictor for mortality. In fact, the adjusted odds ratio was 1.9, suggesting you're two times more likely to die if your initial antibiotic therapy wasn't appropriate in covering MRSA. So, you know, in my way of looking at things, that's a very high increase risk of mortality for simply not covering these infections early on. And as a clinician, I think, you know, it's often extremely difficult, you know, unless you have a very good specimen with a gram stain that can be looked at to rule in or rule out one of these infections when the patient initially presents. I will tell you that based on this particular study in part and others, uh, we actually have a paper uh, from a study that we performed here coming out in critical care medicine uh, looking at an intervention that we put into place to really minimize our administration of inappropriate therapy to patients like this. And and, and that's something that I think uh, we were very uh, excited about and, and, and certainly is something that, uh, you know, I urge your listeners uh, to look forward to in upcoming issues of critical care medicine. It looks like it was the minority of these patients who were started on appropriate antibiotic therapy. Is that correct? That's right. For MRSA. So the issue here is that the patient looks as if they're infected. You know, if you notice on the table, there's a fairly broad grouping of uh, infections here, obviously the more important ones being blood, pneumonia, and the initial antibiotic did not include coverage for MRSA in this cohort. One of the other questions I had in sort of taking the results of the study out into the field, as you know, every hospital has a different sort of structured approach to dealing with uh, antibiotics, A, in the ICU, but B, antibiotic restriction in general. And I, know, I have heard you lecture on this, this concept of allowing people to start things, but then shutting them off, starting antibiotics broadly, and then shutting them off. It really is a different paradigm from what many hospitals have now, where you have to call to get approval to get things started. And I was wondering if you you wanted to spend a few minutes talking on this important sure. topic. I, I think every hospital needs to address these issues and to do it uh, really in an educated manner. I think the idea of simply limiting antibiotics, having highly restricted formularies, is not going to address this issue. We need to be able to assist clinicians in identifying patients who are at high risk for infection with multi-drug resistant pathogens, get those patients treated aggressively early and then also assist clinicians in giving them tools to help them in de-escalating their antibiotic regimens once the culture comes back, once the susceptibilities are known. I think this is the paradigm that you know we are forced to use given the high rates of antimicrobial resistance, not just in gram-positive bacteria, but in gram-negative bacteria as well. Uh, would you like to make any sort of final comments to the listeners about this whole area, or are you comfortable? Yeah, I would, and, and, and I would just say one thing, you know, if you're working in the hospital or in the ICU, 
you know, simply try to keep track of how often you see a situation where the patient's initial antibiotic therapy was not active against their subsequently identified pathogen. I mean, if you identify a situation like that, I think you need to address it. And, you know, you should have some type of a local strategy in place to optimize the administration of appropriate early antibiotic therapy to those individuals. If nothing like that exists, uh, then, you know, it needs to be put into place. Today on the podcast, we've been speaking with Dr. Marin Kolev. He is a professor at Washington University in St. Louis, and he's been speaking with us about his article that will be coming out in Critical Care Medicine entitled MRSA Sterile Site Infection, the Importance of Initial Appropriate Antimicrobial Therapy. Thank you so much, Dr. Kolev, for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much. This concludes our podcast for Monday, July 17th, 2006. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for future podcasts, please call the Society of Critical Care Medicine's audio feedback line at 1-847-493-6498 to share your thoughts. Critical Care Medicine is the official journal of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. Thanks again for listening. The Society's new conference, Excellence in Quality and Safety in Critical Care, in Baltimore, Maryland, USA, September 21st through 23rd, 2006, will bring together leading experts to examine patient safety, adverse medical events, and preventable medical errors, as well as identify everyday solutions to incorporate into practice. Using evidence-based studies and proven guidelines, participants will learn how to create a more efficient and safer ICU. In addition, pre-courses in coding and billing practices or medical emergency and rapid response teams will be offered. Register today by calling 1-847-827-6888 or visiting www.sccm.org.